one of you, and welcome to Christ Church. We're so pleased that you have chosen to worship with us this day, and we pray that during this hour of worship, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ will fall afresh upon us, and that the living Lord will be evident to all of us as we worship together today. My name is John Klingelhofer, and I serve as the pastor of outreach here at the church, and we know that many of you are joining us via our live stream broadcast, and we want to especially welcome you, and particularly those who might be tuning in with us for the very first time. If there's anything that we can do for you to help you this morning, don't hesitate to make use of the chat function on our live stream broadcast, and we will be very happy to respond to you. And it's also wonderful to see each and every one of you who are gathered here in the sanctuary. We're grateful that we can come together in the house of the Lord to worship as the body of Christ. This is Reformation Sunday, the day when we give thanks for the Reformers who risked their lives by challenging current authority during the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. One of the greatest hymns to come from this period of history is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Written by Martin Luther, this is also called the battle hymn of the Reformation, and it's a paraphrase of Psalm 46, and a great reminder to each of us of the God that the Reformers pointed us toward. In just a moment, we're going to be able to stand together and to sing that great hymn, but before we do, I invite you to join with me in our responsive call to worship. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. Come, let us worship God, our fortress and our strength.
Please join with me as we now bow our heads in prayer. Gracious and loving Lord, as we gather for worship, we do acknowledge that you are our mighty fortress. And we ask for your help as we gather in affection, as we pray in faith, as we sing with fervor, as we give with selflessness, as we listen intently, and as we go forth into the world in enthusiastic service. Thank you for calling us together, Lord, and we pray now for the power and might of your Spirit to shine upon us, filling us with the power of Christ Jesus. We know, Lord, that our lives and all of our ways are like an open book before you. There's nothing we can hide from you. And with humility, we recall those things in which daily we fall short of your standard. The spirit of true love motivates us only fitfully. We confess that concern for others is often overlooked because we're absorbed with ourselves. The things of faith seldom occupy the central ground of our thinking, and we often live and act, if we're honest, as if you were not here at all. So forgive us, for we are aware of the many ways in which we betray you, both by doing wrong and by leaving good undone you are aware of so many more, which we in our hardness don't even notice. And so forgive us, we pray, so far as we're ready to be forgiven and bring us to a new place of peace and wholeness for the sake of him who died for our forgiveness, Jesus Christ, in whose name we humbly pray, amen. The Bible says that if we claim that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, promises that He will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so may the God of mercy, who forgives us all our sin, strengthen us and Give us His goodness in our hearts, and by the power of His Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Friends, let us believe this good news of the gospel once again, that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.
Please join with me once again as we bow our heads in prayer. On this Reformation Sunday, we give you thanks, O Lord, for the witness of persons of faith, past and present. In every time and place, you have raised up women and men whose devotion and integrity inspired others to follow you. So thank you for the courageous reformers of your church, for their sacrificial love and their complete devotion to you. We pray that the Reformation that began long ago will continue in each one of us. Give us inspiration, O God. Give us your vision. Give us your power to make all things new. We bring many prayers of concern to you this day. We worry a great deal about the turmoil in our world and the unrest that plagues so many of the nations. We know people in our families, in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our church who are hurting and need help. Some of us are concerned about our own health issues and others are frightened because they've lost a job and they don't know where to turn for help. There are other things that some of us harbor in our hearts that we carry to you, but only you, because we're afraid to tell anyone else. And so we bring all of our worries and all of our concerns, all of our secret longings to you now. In this moment of silence, when we ask for your healing touch on the world, on our lives and those lives of the people that we love and care for. Father God, in the midst of all the turmoil that surrounds our nation at this point in history, we ask for your divine intervention to calm troubled waters and to restore hope as we work together to solve the problems of our day. Give to the men and women of faith the courage to seek your ways in all that we do and say. We pray that you would empower your church to stand strong in the headwinds of change that are poised to undermine your purposes. We need the power of your word like never before, O oh God, and we need the church to mobilize, to reach across the street and around the corner to bring people together under the outstretched arms of Christ. And so we pray for another outpouring of your spirit upon your people as we scatter across the neighborhoods where we live and the nation where we stand. We pray for a renewed understanding that each one of us has a responsibility to influence for the good the people we meet with the claims of Christ. Help us to be bolder in our outreach, stronger in our convictions, and less inclined to wait until tomorrow to witness to the person we are with today. And now we commit these concerns and prayers unto you, and we also commit our lives anew to the building of your kingdom. In the name of Christ our Lord and our Savior, who teaches us to pray together by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, good morning once again and welcome to Christ Church. Thank you for joining us online and here in the sanctuary. If you're joining us for the first time, we want to extend a special welcome to you and let you know we are really looking forward to getting to know you. If you'd like to connect and begin to learn more about Christ Church, we would be privileged to talk with you. 
All you need to do is send a text to the number on the screen or visit our webpage and we will lovingly respond to your needs. As the COVID pandemic wears on, the effects of individuals and families continues. This is something we're so aware of. Like many of you, we're asking here at the church, how can we help? A recent study at Northwestern University has discerned that food insecurity has more than tripled with families with children. This is due in part because of job loss. Some, uh, it's due to illness in the family, or in some cases, it's even due to the closure of school lunch programs, which makes it difficult for children to have at least one nutritious meal per day. In the last eight months, this congregation has done a terrific job of providing donated food for our food pantry. And as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, there are still opportunities for you to generously give. If you follow the link on your screen, you will find a list of the food and household items that are needed. Your donation helps our food pantry as well as the many domestic mission partners that we serve in the inner city of Chicago. Another way that you can help families in need is to take part in our shoebox ministry. Filling a shoebox for a deserving child is a great way to share the love of Christ during this Christmas season. You can pick up one of those flat shoeboxes outside today after worship, or if you're not here today, you can stop by the church during the week and pick up one outside just by door number 17. It's sobering, I think, to realize that COVID-19 has changed our lives in so many different ways over these past eight months, and we still have lots of challenges ahead of us. In this time of great upheaval and change, the Church of Jesus Christ is called to respond with grace and hope to everyone around us. This is our time as a church to make it known that in addition to our singing and praying and worshiping on Sundays, we're also committed to reaching out seven days a week to a world that's groaning under the weight of an invisible adversary that wants to defeat us. So I want to encourage you to listen closely to the words of the musical offering entitled, I Will Sing new songs of gladness. It's based on the 147th Psalm. And the psalmist writes, I will extol you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They tell of the power of your awesome works and will provide your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness. We have the opportunity to not only use our voices to celebrate God's abundant goodness, but to also share a portion of what He's graciously given to all of us. We can stand up together to relieve the suffering of many people that are all around us in our communities. So I invite you to be part of supplying His abundant goodness to others as they come to know Christ through the ministries of Christ Church and our mission partners around the world. This morning you can give by texting to the number on your screen, by going to our website or using the box outside door number 17, or if you're worshiping with us in the sanctuary in person, you can drop off your offering in the basket at the end of our service. Thank you for your generosity, your large heart for Christ and the world and for those in need. We continue our worship now with the giving of our morning tithes and offerings. I will sing Jehovah's praises 
Our text for this morning comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. The Apostle Paul writes this, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have all the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. And if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we are continuing a sermon series that Dan so eloquently kicked off for us last week, simply called 1221. We are walking through Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul is pleading with, he is urging the early church to have a mindset of unity and humility and encouragement as they live out their faith in the midst of some very challenging times. Our subtitle for the series is called Wisdom in Conflicted Times. Now, I don't think the conflicted times needs any further explanation, but the wisdom piece is important. And it's especially important because I want you to know as pastors and leaders of this church, we are feeling the weight of our times with you. We're not above it, we're not outside of it, we are not apathetic to it, we are in the midst with eagerness and anxiety with you, and we're on our knees. We are on our knees and we are asking God for the wisdom of his goodness 
and of his graciousness, of a God who holds all things together. And as Dan reminded us last week, he operates outside and beyond the powers of this world. And so friends, we need his wisdom today. Fortunately for us, in another letter to the early church, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. And so before we really take a deep dive into this text this morning, can we do that? Can we just ask God for his wisdom together? Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, may we humble ourselves before you. We confess that we don't have all the answers. We can't always see the way forward, but we trust that you do. And so help us not to lean on our own understanding this morning, Lord, but instead in all of our ways, let us acknowledge you. Transform us, Lord, for our good, and for your glory, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Romans chapter 12 begins with Paul urging the early church in Rome not to conform to the patterns of the world, but instead to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. And last week, if you missed Dan's sermon, or maybe if you're tuning in for the first time today, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But I want to do that with one caveat, and my caveat to you is this. Um, unlike Dan, I am not a political science major who graduated from Yale. And so my sermon today is going to look much different than what his did last week. Honestly, I'm not even sure I took a political science class in college, but that's why we're trusting in the wisdom of God. And so maybe just lower your bar just a little bit this morning. But what Dan did last week is he started a really important conversation in which he invited us to identify the narratives in our culture that are not only vying for our attention, but have become so effective and so pervasive in invading our hearts and our minds that they threaten to erode the ultimate narrative that God has been weaving through his people throughout the history of time, a narrative of redemption and of restoration of mercy and hope and light both in this life now and in the life to come. In Romans 12, chapter 3, Paul uses these two great words. He says, be sober-minded. Sober-minded reminds us not only to be clear-headed about these narratives in our world that are coming at us, but Paul goes a step further and he says also, we need to muster up the courage to hold a mirror to our own life. We need to hold a mirror to our own soul. We need to ask God to show us in all our glorious beauty and in all of our very ugly weaknesses to show us who we are and in light of his mercy and grace. And then Paul doesn't just leave us there. He takes us one step further and he says, you know what, not only do you need to remind yourselves of that, but we need to look at others. We need to remind ourselves who others are in the light of his mercy and his grace, especially when we are in relationship with people whose lives and thoughts and actions and voting patterns don't look exactly like our own. It is the waters we're swimming in in 2020, so I, I know it might be a stretch to get you to think that way, but just... Enter in with me for just a minute. Sober-minded, this idea, meaning that we don't let our minds get fuzzy by the influences that impair our ability to see the world around us and see the people God has placed in that world in a way other than God sees them. One quick mental picture for you. I just can't help myself in telling this story. Um, earlier this summer, my daughter, Sadie, she's 18 years old, uh, she got her wisdom teeth out. And for any of you who have had a child or maybe you yourself has gotten your wisdom teeth out, or if you have a YouTube account, you know that some funny things happen when kids get their wisdom teeth out. 
And I got Sadie from the dentist chair into the car. And from that time, just that short little walk, she started sobbing uncontrollably because she was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the dentist had cut out her tongue. Completely convinced. And it didn't matter what we said to her. It didn't matter that for the next two hours, how many times we told her it wasn't true. It didn't matter how many times we showed her her tongue in her mirror or in her cell phone. It didn't matter how much we tried to reason her out of the falsehood with logic and rationale. She would have no part of it. In fact, she told us we didn't love her. She told us we were liars. She used some very choice words that I've never heard come out of the mouth of my daughter before. And why? Why? You get it. Because she couldn't hear the truth. She couldn't even think about a different way to look at her world in that moment because she was being influenced by something other than the truth. She wasn't sober-minded. You see the image? Are you with me? So remember that Paul is writing to the church in Rome who is experiencing very high tensions, not just in the world around them, but right in the community of their faith. The church is primarily made up of two different groups of people, the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles. And both groups of people would have had a set of ideologies that they grew up with, that were ingrained with the, to them, that would have shaped and formed them for the better part of their lives. Each group would have been thought to, taught to think and to move and interact with the world in a certain way, in a certain framework that would shape, shape what they read, who they listened to, what newspapers they read, what websites they went to, what policies and programs they were most likely to support in the public square. And not only did you have those two groups of people, but within each group of people, there was tremendous diversity. It wasn't a rubber stamp. They didn't all think the same within their own groups. And because it's human nature, because we are sinful, broken people, we, as, long as, as, lo as well as each group, would have thought that their way of viewing life was right and that those on the other side of the aisle were clearly not sober-minded, that they were clearly out of their mind. This was the world that was happening at the time, and then one day the world got turned upside down when a long-haired recluse named John the Baptist started shouting from the wilderness that the Son of God had come to proclaim the good news for the poor and to set the captives free. And a little while later, there was this guy named Saul who was on the road to Damascus and he got blinded by a light and his whole life turned upside down in a minute. And now we have two groups of people who never thought they would occupy the same space sitting together and worshiping together and trying to figure out how to live their lives under the authority and the teaching of a poor Jewish carpenter named Jesus of Nazareth, who also, by the way, turned out to be the savior of the world. And he completely shattered, shattered all of their ideological boxes that they had spent their whole lives shaping and keeping so safe and neat. And so at the time Paul wrote this letter, the Jewish Christians had actually been expelled from Rome. The Gentile church in Rome had raised up. The leaders there were running the church as they thought they should. And then something happened in the, the larger world, in the political world. The Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. And when they came back, the Jewish Christians didn't really like how the Gentiles were running the church. It didn't line up with how they thought things should go. And it wasn't because they necessarily disagreed on the big stuff. I mean, they all, at the end of the day, did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. But because a certain way of life had been so ingrained in them, and they had sharp differences in family and ethnic and socio 
socioeconomic backgrounds, the lenses through which they viewed their life and through which they viewed the church were not only different, but how they believed they best honored God as they lived out their faith in that church were radically different as well. And so Paul speaks this word to them. He writes to them and he says, you have to learn somehow to value one another in spite of your differences. The kingdom of God depends on it. And honestly, it wasn't going so hot. Paul is heartbroken. He is deeply concerned about their differences and how their differences are not only fracturing the church, but how they're injuring one another. They are causing pain to other members of their own body, and they were jeopardizing their witness to the world around them. And so Paul gives them a little advice, and he says this in verse three, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each one of you. In other words, think of yourself in relationship to the righteousness and grace of God and ask him to make you clear-headed so that you know how best to treat your brother and your sister who are sitting alongside of you doing the best they can too. You know, I think one of the hardest things that we have to do as we walk through our Christian life, especially in 2020, is to have an accurate view of who we are. I think so often we fall into this trap of either thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, or we swing the other way and we fall into the trap of thinking of ourselves more lowly than we should, like we're not enough. And we do this because we forget, we become fuzzy. We forget that God assigns value to each one of us, not because we think or we act or we achieve or we do things a certain way, but because we are first and foremost his unique and beloved creation who has value outside any narrative in this world. And so when we struggle to see our own value, then all of a sudden we struggle to recognize the value in one another. The image that keeps coming to mind to, mind to me is of a teeter-totter, you know, an old-fashioned, I don't know, when's the last time you've been on a playground? Those old-fashioned seesaws. And some days we feel like we're awesome, right? We feel like we are nailing life. We got this thing down. We're proud of the kind of person we are. We're proud of the choices that we're making. We're proud of the children that we are raising. We feel successful in our educations and in our workplaces and how we're using our gifts and our resources to invest into others and make a difference in the world. And so we're up here on our teeter-totter. We're on the top. And then something happens. We have a bad day at work. We miss the deadline. We blow the closing argument. We scream at our students, the little kindergartners in our classrooms that can't figure out how to work whatever they're working. We break our promises. We do the thing that we said we would never, we would never do again. We get a phone call about those kids that we were so proud of, and it's not a good phone call. It's not the news we want to hear. We scroll through our Instagram or our Facebook or our social media feeds too long and we realize all of a sudden that our lives don't look as happy and cozy and beautiful as the other people that we are looking at and all of a sudden we've gone from being at the top to being at the bottom of this seesaw, flat on our backs, feeling discouraged and sad and lonely. And I really do believe that not only do we struggle with the teeter-totter as we view our own values, but it plays out as we look at other people, as we, as we view others, because so often we view others based on the assumptions that we make, not only about the exterior of their, their lives, but their motives, their agendas, their values, especially when they don't fit in the neat little box that we think God has created for each one of us. 
And so Paul reminds us in verse 3 that perhaps the most dangerous place we can be on this teeter-totter in relationship to one another is not only when we're on the high end looking down at everyone else, but oftentimes we think God is up on the high one with us. One of my favorite authors, favorite quotes of all time, always puts me in check, is from Anne Lamont, and she says this, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. We gotta look at what end of the teeter-totter we're on. And I'm not saying we do this all the time, I'm not saying we do it intentionally, but what I am saying is when tensions run high, like they were in the early church, when tensions run high in the midst of a political season and a worldwide pandemic and everything else that we have going on in the world, we're anxious about the future, something we care very deeply about, we are not always the best view, have the best view of ourselves, nor do we have the best view of the people around us. And so friends, what's the antidote? What do we do about this? And the good news is Paul actually gives us some words of advice. He says two things. One, he says, be humble. You know, in the ancient world, humility was a completely foreign concept. Rome was fiercely competitive. People were consumed with their own agendas, with the pursuit of their own glory and honor and status. They were raising themselves high on the teeter-totter and they were really good. They liked staring down at the people below them. They would have definitely had to mute the microphones at the debate if you had the Jewish Christians and the Gentiles on the other side of the room. Humility. We've got to learn humility. Humility was one of those earth-shattering principles that Jesus called his followers to that turned the world upside down. It was like nothing they had ever seen, and he modeled it. He modeled it everywhere he went with every person that he was with, whether he was healing the poor or whether he was talking to the priests in the high court. Jesus was a model of humility. Paul knows it. In his letter to the Philippians, he reminds us, he says this, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness, if any compassion, do we have those things today? Do we experience those things in our life? If you have received any of that, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Not the same, it doesn't mean you agree on everything, but be like-minded, have the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset, the same mindset of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Humility in 2020 might look something like saying, you know, I haven't really thought of that before. You know, I don't, I don't really understand your perspective. I don't, your life looks much different from mine. Can you tell me a little bit more about your story and how you come to that? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I'm gonna listen first. I don't agree with you, but you know what? I see the value in who you are and what you bring. And so I'm gonna honor you. Maybe we need a little more of that rhetoric in our 2020 lives. The second thing Paul reminds us in verses four through six is to be unified above all else. For just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace that God has given each of us. This is a common theme in Paul's letters. He says it many times to many different churches throughout the region. He says it in 1 Corinthians. He says it in Ephesians. He says, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. It's no surprise where the parts are for God. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, it grows and it builds itself up in love as each part 
does its work. Paul reminds us not just of the beauty that diversity brings, not just that all the parts were valuable, but in fact, all the parts were indispensable. The body didn't work if they weren't all working together. He reminds us that in fact, the diversity of experience and giftedness and gender and ethnicity and race and age and passions and thought and creative solutions to problems that desperately need to be solved for the good of the whole body were actually a reflection of the very body of Christ because each beautiful member had intrinsic value and belonged to one another, not because they were the same, but because they were united in spite the fact that they weren't. You connecting the dots with me this morning? You know, one of the reasons that Paul was so passionate about his letter to the Romans is because he really did believe, he really believed to the core of his soul that a unified church who invested their gifts and valued one another above themselves could not just look real pretty on the inside, he actually believed that they could change the world. And in fact, he was counting, he was banking on the fact that the Church of Rome would figure this out in order to launch the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news to the next part of the world. Paul was banking on the church of Jesus Christ to look and act and smell like Jesus. You know, I wanted to end our time this morning by sharing a really clever story. I actually spent most of my weekend trying to find something really clever and beautiful that would tie this whole thing together. Pete Stearns is preaching in our 1045 contemporary service and he told me a story about Steve Jobs and Pixar and how Steve Jobs recreated that whole environment using the diversity of the gifts of the body to make sure Pixar looks like it does today. And I thought, well, that's a good story. I wish I could steal that, but I guess I probably shouldn't do that to my fellow preacher. So I started to panic, I researched the internet, I looked up all kinds of stories, I was reading stuff about Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln and how they brought together unity and inspired and empowered people in the midst of very difficult times and I thought, oh, that's not quite right. And then I found some really beautiful stories about the late justices, Anthony Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and their story of friendship and love and value and acceptance of one another in spite of the fact that they were on polar opposite ends politically. I spent my whole weekend trying to be really clever for you. And you know what happened? God just kept bringing back to me one image, a really simple image that I'm gonna close with that happened in my life last week. It was a Tuesday night. I don't know if any of you remember Tuesday night. It was rainy. It was just getting dark. I had to head up here to the church for a meeting. And so I got in my car and I pulled out of our neighborhood and I have to cross Butterfield Road. So I crossed two lanes of traffic to get to a median before I can pull out and head east on Butterfield. And just as I pulled out and I got to the median, I heard a car horn blaring at me And you know, I I felt like the whoosh of it speeding by just the tail end of my car. And I I sat there for a minute because I wasn't sure what happened. It it happened so quickly. My hands were shaking just a little bit. And I realized all of a sudden that the whole reason this happened was because the car that was speeding down the highway at me didn't have his lights on. I pulled out in front of them and I made them angry because I never saw them coming. I never saw them. And as I sat there for a minute and collected myself, I wondered if that other person had any idea that they were driving through a dark and rainy night without their lights on. You know, friends, we are 10 days out from one of the most contentious political elections in the history of our time. Someone is going to win and someone is going to lose. And some of us are gonna be really happy about the outcome, and some of us 
are going to be really distraught. Some of us are going to be laying in a ball in the corner no matter what happens. But you know what, friends, it doesn't matter. Because what does not change is the fact that we today are the church of Jesus Christ. We are the light of the world. We are the best hope that this world has. And Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he entrusted us. He entrusted us in all of our beautiful diversity and giftedness and differences. He trusted us to let our light shine in the darkness. He trusted us to let our light shine on one another and in this world. He trusted us to be a beacon of hope and the mercy and the grace of a good and holy God who is not bound by the powers of this world. And so friends, my invitation for you today, my encouragement in the days and in the weeks and in the months to come, let's ask God for his wisdom. Let's ask him for his grace. We cannot do this on our own. We're not sober-minded enough. Ask him to help us humble ourselves, to value others above ourselves, to set aside our own agendas and to be unified in this beautiful body that's not just beautiful, but that belongs to one another, belongs to one another under the authority and the supremacy of the Lord and the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Friends, the church is the hope of the world. You, with Jesus Christ, are the hope of the world. And so turn your lights on. Don't drive down a dark and stormy street and not let others see the light that only Jesus can bring. Let's pray. God, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Help us to clothe ourselves with the kind of humility that you so beautifully modeled for us. Let us shine your light brightly in the places of the world for those people that most need to see and know you. Transform our minds, transform our hearts, and change us, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.
friends, thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Whether you are here in the room with us or online, we're so happy that you chose to spend your Sunday morning with us. It's been a privilege. For those of you in the room, in just a moment, our ushers are going to be dismissing you by aisle. And so if you can be patient and wait for that, and then once you leave, we'd ask that you continue to wear your masks until you get into the parking lot and um, social distance as well. Well, friends, as you leave this place today, may the love of God, may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that unites us all be with you now and forevermore. Go in peace. Amen.